וגם אני פתאום רואה את הקולות. Welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kolel, and it's my great honor and privilege to bring to you our next episode featuring Tzipa Leah Scheinberg, LCSW. This episode we will call Trauma and Triumph 2.0. Should be a fascinating episode. Last week, or last episode, we had my aunt, uh, Jill Kappenstein, who talked about somatic experiencing, uh, which is some sort of uh, modality for those suffering with trauma. And today we're going to discuss something else that people do when they're in trauma. And believe it or not, there are a lot of different types of trauma. We're going to discuss, does everyone have a little bit of trauma? So it's going to be a very fun episode and we're going to learn a lot. There's going to be what to learn for parents with children, especially young children, and how the early developmental stages of a child are so important and crucial for their health down the road. So we're going to discuss a lot, and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, we'd like to thank our media sponsor, and that is Columbus Jewish News, CJN. Thank you for being our media, spo- media sponsor. And we're also going to dedicate this episode to Sipalea's father-in-law. And I have to share with you that uh, that is my great uncle, uh, Harav Meir Scheinberg, Zechert Sarak Levracha, Meir Ben Shmuel. And we're going to dedicate this episode in his memory, Eloi Nishmaso. And uh, hopefully uh, you're going to learn a lot. I hope you could share. If you could leave a review, that would be great. And without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. <laughs> Sipa Leah Scheinberg is a registered, licensed clinical social worker, certified EMDR therapist, EMDR-approved consultant, and certified clinical trauma professional. She specializes in providing individual therapy for women who struggle with developmental and relational trauma, grief, and dissociation. She utilizes an evidence-based technique called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing as well as an extensive training in mindfulness-based self-compassion, ego state work, attachment repair work, and some other things that are a little hard for me to pronounce. But without any further ado, welcome, (laughs) Sipalea, to Kolo. Thank you so much for joining us. It's such an honor to be here. So I want to know if you could tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into this field, and what exactly is it that you specialize in? Okay. Um, so I don't think you know this about me, but my father was a Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm the youngest of a big family. And um, it's unusual for somebody my age to actually be a child of survivors, usually their grandchildren or great grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So um, just to kind of give you perspective, my father was in Bergen-Belsen. Um, the next door bunker was Anne Frank. So like just kind of putting in a context um, after he survived the British liberated Bergen Belson, he, he moved to England. He lost most of his, you know, he lost his father um, and he moved to England and he married and, and settled down there as a child growing up. You know, somebody once asked me like, when were you introduced to the Holocaust? There was no formal introduction. The Holocaust was just in the air. 
Like it was just part of the the avira, the, the way that the house ran. Um, and as a very young child, I was very interested about trauma and post-traumatic growth almost immediately, trying just to explain some of the successes I saw and also some of the other things that I was seeing. Okay. So can we ask you for, I guess, the clinical definition of trauma and maybe explain it in a way for simple folks like us, uh, like me, I mean, um, could understand it, you know, not necessarily with all the sophisticated background that you, you know, that you learn in school, but, you know, uh, some sort of like benchmark how to understand what is trauma. Sure. So let's talk about three different types of trauma, right? There's acute trauma, which is critical single incident trauma. God forbid a school shooting, a tsunami, um, being attacked by a bear, um, being stuck in an elevator for 48 hours without food or drink, right? A single incident critical trauma. Um, There is chronic trauma, which is when people grow up with not enough of what they need consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's usually neglect is involved with that. Um, where their basic needs are not met. Again, food, water, safety, basic protection, limit, it's not set. And then this complex trauma, which is chronic plus acute. So what's the name of the third? Complex. Right. Complex. So complex okay. trauma is when you have a, like a, like a childhood intended. Okay. Exactly. It's when you have this very difficult childhood plus some critical incidents that we're not taking care of. Wow. Okay. Um, so incidental chronic and the two together are the three different types. Um, is it fair to say that everyone's had some sort of incidental trauma? Is that a fair statement? It's, it's really tricky. Um, you know, the word trauma. You know, and, and I'm going to tell yeah. you why I, I asked that question. Yeah. I referenced this in our last episode and I'll reference it again now because to me it was a mind-blowing statement that I've ever since I heard I've been saying over a lot. Um, one of our early episodes were, was with um, a friend, a, really a Rebbe of mine. I had just become such a Talmud of listening to all his stuff is Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. And he, we were talking about people fighting and machlokas and what could happen when there's these types of things. And he told, and he said, sometimes when he sees people fighting, he feels like telling them, brother, you're not fighting. Your traumas are fighting with each other. Um, and, and I like now, like when I think about it, like, yeah, this person is ultra sensitive because something must have happened to him and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't know if he was, you know, he's exaggerating or, or not, but I guess that kind of made me want to ask you, so does everyone have a little bit of trauma? So let me put it to you this way, because I love, I remember Jacobson really so often I send clients to him for chizak. You know, he's, uh-huh. he's such a, such a resource. Um, let's put it this way. Let's say, let's say you're cooking in your kitchen, right? And well, you're cooking, you're, you know, you're, you're stirring some eggs, you're making something and all of a sudden your oven kind of blows up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you grab the fire extinguisher and you, you get it out. That's not trauma. That's a difficult moment. If God forbid there's a child standing there and a a child gets hurt, right? The memory and the episode of a child getting hurt is stored in a different part of the brain than a difficult moment. Mm -hmm. So traumas are stored in the amygdala of the brain, the base of the brain, 
and difficult moments are stored in the prefrontal cortex. And this is a huge piece to understand because people can have a lot of difficult moments, but not necessarily as trauma. Trauma is when there's an existential threat to the nervous system, whether physical or spiritual. And children who don't necessarily have the maturity to realize this is, you know, this doesn't happen every day. You know, this is, you know, we'll get past this and we'll have precautions so it doesn't happen again. They don't have that, you know, intellectual capacity. So they, they therefore store it in their brain as something that could be lasting for much longer. Is that basically how it is? Well, interesting. A young, I've seen young children who've, you know, survived, let's say, near drownings or something like that, right? Those are what we're calling those critical single incidence trauma. They very often can get, can really with a little bit of EMDR work, they can come right back with adults, right? That something happens to a child very often is a trauma stored in the brain. Mm -hmm. What happens when it's stored? Does it collect interest? Yes. What a great way to put it. Yes, absolutely. It absolutely does collect interest and it really starts to impact let me give you a couple of examples, right? So people come into my office very often, let's say, with anxiety around a subject. For example, they're terrified of dogs. They're frightened of bridges. They, um, they've, I'm trying to think, they're frightened of elevators, right? These, these, these mm-hmm. single, and, but it impacts everybody around them. EMDR really helps, without too much talking about it, really helps us go into the amygdala of, of the brain and help reprocess it, that it becomes, as a person starts to feel safer and better again, it starts to resolve the phobia and the fear, not fix it or rescue. Okay. Um, so now you mentioned EMDR, and I know that got a lot of attention when um, Harav Hagoyin, Prince Harry, went public about his EMDR, um, you know, how it helped him. So for the layperson out there, um, and I consider myself among them. What is EMDR? I know what it stands for, but what exactly what is, is it? it? Once you define, once you give us the definition, if you could like, if you don't mind, like walk us through, what does a typical session with EMDR look like? Okay. So I'm going to. Oh, and lastly, when does someone know that EM, how could someone know if EMDR is good for them where they should then seek help? Of course, this episode is not meant for someone to then just directly apply, but how do they know if it's in the ballpark for them or someone they know, of course, um, where they then can know that this is the appropriate, uh, you know, future steps. Modality. Right. So I'm, I brought this in to show you, cause I think this is super helpful. Mm-hmm. So this, these are the three worlds that we kind of inhabit all the time. We're in the present, which is the middle world, mm-hmm. but we all understand that the past deeply impacts the way that we see the present. With me so far. Do you agree on that one? So good. So far, so good. So the past deeply impacts it. Therefore, when you have something in your present that you've read your self-help books, you've talked it out with a friend or a mentor or your or your rough, and you've tried various self-help techniques, and for some reason it doesn't doesn't seem to go, that's when thinking about EMDR can be very helpful. Okay. What about the third world? That's the future, I presume. Absolutely. So the third world is once you've done some EMDR work, it helps you both in your present and in your anticipation of the future. Let's think about anxiety for a second, right? Mm-hmm. When somebody's anxious, what does that actually mean? It means that they usually imagine that they can't cope with a threat, and the threat is usually much bigger than it really is. 
That's the amygdala talking. That's that interest that you talked about. That's the amygdala talking, right? So we take, when the memories are stored in the amygdala, we take, we understand from EMDR that we're looking in the past for something that's really created this turmoil, this, this fear. And we target that in a session. And then we target, how would you feel in the future? So let's take a dog bite, for example, right? Um, somebody comes in, they're terrified of dogs and they're moving to a new neighborhood and there's dogs all over, right? Mm-hmm. We target the old memories of them being frightened. And then we, once that's cleared, we start to target the future. What would you like to look like when you're walking around with lots of dogs? I'd like to be pretty chill. And we kind of install that in the prefrontal cortex. Okay. What does EMDR therapy look like? What, the, oh what does the... Uh, oh, I don't get a $500 bill after this, but what does the, <laughs> uh, the patient, uh, the client and the therapist, what, what, what does that conversation look like? Because, you know, I'm sure most people are familiar with like, you know, the typical CBT where they have a false belief and that's what's dictating what they do and think and feel, et cetera. But MDR is a little more sophisticated. Yeah. So if you could walk us through what that actually looks like in real time. Sure. And I also want to say like, it, it is so sophisticated at this point, you know, studying for years to be a certified therapist and then more years and teaching EMDR to be um, a certified consultant, right? I deal with, I deal with a lot of anxiety and PTSD, but a lot of complex PTSD where it gets much more tricky. But mm-hmm. let's talk about COVID for a minute because that's really where so much of EMDR really kind of, and I'll get back to Prince Harry, don't worry. <laughs> but I saw, right, let's think about COVID, doctors and nurses, they were trained to treat, they were trained to help understaffed, terrified, not knowing what to do, right? So, so many of the medical personnel really wanted to quit their job and they came out with PTSD. We went into hospitals and did some EMDR sessions where the, they remembered those first, that first wave of COVID and they were utterly helpless, right? Not to let it go into the future, but they'll, they'll continue to feel hopeless. Like that was then and this is now type of thing. And how do you, how do you stamp that in your brain? Nice to say, but how do you, you know, how right. do you become so that is a, that is a protocol that that is a protocol that we do with people, right? It's a very specific protocol, um, just like a medical protocol where, but it's obviously hands off, not hands on, but it's a medical protocol where we are helping people go from a really, from the amygdala, really traumatic memory. We help them process all the way through. Um, through bilateral stimulation, where sometimes we're tapping different sides of our body, sometimes it's with a light bar, sometimes with tappers. I have them right behind me. But there's a very specific protocol to help bring it to the prefrontal cortex and then to let it go. Okay, so, so what happens when it comes from the, I don't know. I've, amygdala. Amygdala. Um, sounds like a Hebrew word, actually. But, yeah. Um, how, how, so what? what's the, uh, as we would say, once we're at Hebrew, what's the nafkamina if it's in the... What's the practical difference if it's in the amygdala versus the prefrontal cortex? Okay, that is a beautifully formulated question. When it's in the amygdala, it cannot tell time. Wow. It is It is the most terrifying feeling to live through a flashback, mm-hmm. right? So I had nurses coming into, the, coming into the hospital parking lot have a flashback, which is the amygdala holding these shards of memories, like as if a crystal glass is dropped on the floor. You have these shards right? These shards of memories of patients screaming, patients in pain, and they could do nothing about it. Mm-hmm. And the memory is intrusive. They don't want it, right? That's a PTSD moment. They don't want it. They're not thinking about it. It comes unbidden. And that's the amygdala not being able to tell time. Once it goes to the prefrontal cortex, 
We can talk about it. We have smell. We have words. We're able to draw it. It starts to be able to process and go. The body naturally heals. Like I shouldn't put into the body that we naturally heal. Mm-hmm. What's in the prefrontal cortex? We can talk about it and it can go. Right, because if I'm with my very limited knowledge, the prefrontal cortex is responsible for logical and rational thinking. Correct. That's that's the left side. The left is your logic, but the right is your creativity oh, and your visual. Right, all your right. So, like being able to describe a visual. Right. So, and if it's not in the rational part of the brain, then of course it's timeless because you know why not? The, the past is going to repeat itself, just like the future is going to be the past. You know, and et cetera. Yeah. Like a, so when we're dreaming where the impossible happens, is that also like the amygdala more focused or how, how does that work when we're sleeping? So PTSD dreams, which I don't wouldn't wish on anybody, right, is a kind of flashback in a dream in a certain REM cycle of sleep, um, which is usually sometimes could be a memory repeated, but usually it's a theme of hopelessness, helplessness and feeling trapped. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question I asked uh, with our last episode on uh, on SE somatic experience. Um, how how does that uh, does it is it is it you know like at odds with CBT? For and, and my question, I'll try to you know nuance, uh, make it a little more nuanced. Um, a lot of um, anxiety that you met, you referenced earlier, anxiety from PTSD. So a lot of anxiety is like, yeah, just build tolerance. You know, just uh, you know. Like with OCD, you know, keep, uh, you know, keep getting your hands dirty and build tolerance, exposure therapy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, a, 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 can that be helpful with PTSD? Yeah. Specifically think about that trauma, let it boil up. The bubbles are going, are bub- it's bubbling inside you and just like, yeah, keep building tolerance and then eventually it just like, yeah, that's, you know, you get comfortable with the discomfort. Can that be used here or this is the exact opposite approach or are they complementary one to the other? Well, Comparing anxiety, there's always anxiety and PTSD, but PTSD is a lot worse, right? We're talking about intrusive thoughts. We're talking about flashbacks where you wouldn't want somebody to be looping in the amygdala if there's a gold standard intervention, you know, World Health Organization, you know, many, many, you know, organizations, this is the gold standard, like for the VA, for the veterans, this is EMDR's gold standard. We don't let people suffer if we have an intervention. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example, perhaps that might kind of coalesce this together. Uh, December 28th, 2019, there was a Muncie stabbing in a shul. Do you remember? Remember that? Right. So right it was, before the Samashas, sure. Right. Right. It was right down the block from. Me, OK, so I'm part of an organization that we are EMDR therapists that go in to situations like that. And we debrief the first responders that had solo members and the cops. And we also immediately do what we call RTEP, Recent Traumatic Events Protocol, EMDR, with the people who saw something so traumatic. Wow. Okay? And I remember the pictures were, you know, were, were, was enough some, to give people trauma. Exactly. Right. So the guy came in, he had a knife, he stabbed five people. People were trying to get, trying to get him, trying to subdue him. There were many, many women and children. The children were terrified. The women, right. You can imagine. So I went, right, so that's what we call critical incident trauma, acute trauma. Mm-hmm. I went down there and I did some EMDR work with solo members who were understandably traumatized and with the people. And we got them down, and EMDR is very number-oriented, to what we call a SUDS of zero, meaning the distress came all the way down. 
This was a terrible incident. It's over. I'm safe now. That was what we were looking to get to. The thing was, good so far? So far, so good. Okay. The thing was that what was a sentence that people were repeating to me over and over again as we were doing the protocol is, they're coming for me. They're coming for me. Okay. Now, as a child of a Holocaust survivor, this started to loop into my personal experience where I was taught, they're coming for you. Like I was really taught that right? There was a safe house, like they're coming. And I realized like after I finished all this, normally, like, you know, I'm trained to let it go. I couldn't let it go. It was in my amygdala and it was like looping, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I went for my own EMDR um, 90 minute session on the vicarious trauma of hearing the sentence, which was part of now my identity from my childhood. Uh-huh. Interestingly enough, three months later, right? COVID hit. And everybody, and I was seeing clients at the time, we went on Zoom, and what was the sentence that people were saying? I feel like I'm in the Holocaust. I feel I have to bunker down and hide. And Baruch Hashem, I'd done this EMDR work for myself because I didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. I just was able to support wow. people. I was like, okay. And I, you know, we did some EMDR work around that. So this starts to become a pay it forward type of thing. Wow. I, You know, on this show, we had Dr. Lieberman, David Lieberman, who also mentioned that you know, we were talking about the mental health and COVID and um, how every single community saw a rise in terrible, terrible, uh, whether it was abuse or divorce and, you know, whole addiction, opioids, et cetera. Um, but interestingly enough, he mentioned that, that the research is now showing that people who had previous uh, mental health struggles did really well over COVID. Yes. I thought fa- fascinating. Yes. Yes, it, it was something old clients who done some really good work with me. Well, they did so well. Rafua Kodum Lamaka. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get to Prince Harry. Prince Harry. Okay. Uh, what, so, what was that all about? I'll let you take it from here. What was the okay. whole thing with the MDR? <laughs> so, Prince Harry, okay, I'm English. So, uh, it's super personal, right? I don't hear it, though. Okay. Right, I know. I know the accent went, but. Um, you should I get know the same because I'm from Atlanta and I don't say Atlanta anymore. Atlanta, right. All right, good. Um, so Prince Harry is personal to anybody English. It's like, oh my gosh, Prince Harry, right? So um, I remember taking off, I was five when Princess Diana and Prince Charles got married. We t- there, there was a national holiday. Like they went off, they canceled school. I remember my father was a Rosh Hashiva, so I snuck into my neighbor who had a television and watched it for hours. You know, like, you know, like this was the big deal. Uh-huh. Um, could you imagine giving off yeshiva because the prince is getting married? It, like, if you think about it now, you know. Um, anyway, so um, Prince Harry, his mother, you know, it, you know, think about the interview that he did with Oprah, right? The me that you don't see. He talks about being, I think, 11 and 12 not allowed to have emotions, right? So right there, not allowed to grieve, right? That is not single incident trauma. That is chronic. that is much more than, right? That we're talking about now chronic and complex, not being allowed to grieve, shutting it down, um, being sent off to boarding school, suck it up. His father said, look, I had life. I think the phrase was something like, I I went through difficulties, so should, so should you, which is a real um, like historical trauma piece. Like you could, if I did it, you can do it. Um, and he says London was a trigger. His mother, I think his words were, my mother was chased to her death as she was dating somebody who wasn't white. And he's like, I'm li- reliving this. I, you know, my wife is not 
this, you know, white like I am, and I, she's being chased. The journalists are coming after. This. I can't bear this, right? London became a trigger. The journalists became a trigger, and his family became a trigger as well. Um, I think he was in a couple of years of talk therapy, which does not help with the amygdala. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Until wasn't, treat, wasn't treating the root cause. No, until he went back, he was brave enough to actually do this and you know, actually televise it so people can know about this therapy. And, um, he, 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 he really kind of, how do I say this? The, the triggers are there, but they're not hot, right? They're, they're not super powerful. They're like, look, I know what this is. And now I can use my prefrontal cortex and CBT to deal with it, but it's not stuck in the back of my brain where I just feel like either me or my wife are going to die. Wow. Yeah. You know, I heard this IDF, uh, Rashi Tevis. Uh, the I, the D, and the F, intensity, duration, and frequency. So if the intensity and duration um, are low, the frequency, you'll deal with it as it comes. That's what it sounds like he's doing. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that, that, is, uh, that is pretty interesting. Um, so you do a lot. You have a family too, yeah. I presume? Yes. I'm How do you family. do it all? I, I... Where was I not supposed <laughs> to ask? <laughs> It's a, it's a lot. I'm actually in the middle of writing a book, you, right? We talked about this. It's it's mm-hmm. it's a lot. I I I love what I do, and I have a lot of support. We talk about the book. What are you writing, and uh, what made you want to write it? So I've always wanted to write. I've been writing since I was very young. Um, I'm writing a book about um, really. It's it's a guide to trauma therapy, but like a user friendly guide. So lots of easy words. What to expect. If you think you need trauma therapy, how is trauma therapy different than, than CBT or talk therapy? What is your therapist going to be asking you? And it's kind of a conversation between a therapist and the client so that you kind of get a feeling of like, oh my gosh, you too. Oh, I, I would also ask my therapist that. And to really demystify what really good trauma therapy is all about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a, a, a story, a success, a success story of someone that was, you know, having trauma, obviously could, you know, you know, change a few details if needed. Uh, someone who came in really uh, in a bad state and how they were able to turn things around with the MDR. Sure. Um, so hmm. I work a lot with women who are struggling with complex PTSD, right? So complex PTSD is really painful memories as well as a toxic sense of shame suicide ideation, feeling really bad about oneself, feeling like like kind of like outside the camp, like I'm damaged and I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, one abuse type of thing. Yeah. So a lot of abuse. One woman that I'd worked with is actually giving me permission, changing details, but to actually talk about a little bit what she went through as a hope that other people would go mm-hmm. for therapy was a religious woman who had been attacked as a child. Um, at about, I'd say about the age of nine, she'd been attacked. She'd, she'd been raped and she kept it from her husband. So there's a tremendous amount of pain and shame and also a terrible feeling that she was a liar. Like she couldn't see that what everything Salt that she found was survived. Like. Yes. Yes. I think one of the most beautiful moments as a therapist was the moment we had, we processed so much of the abuse she went through where she looked at me and she said, you know, I'm innocent. Like, I think all along she had felt like somehow, which is very common with abuse survivors, it's her fault. And I think, you know, 
I saw her years ago. We, we, we keep up every Rosh Hashanah. She gives me a call and I just, I feel so grateful and privileged that I got to train in this and, and work with people who reclaim their lives. A lot of people, is that why a lot of, you know, unfortunately, uh, victims of abuse and molestation, they don't come out because they feel they're, to some extent, they're guilty and they don't want to admit? Is that what's I, really I, going on? I think that's a tremendous amount of it. Yeah. Why is that? It's something that the perpetrator really can can do. It's some of the damage that gets done. It's like, it's my fault, right? It's, it's the, the, the the trauma does not allow the prefrontal cortex to come online. Like, how is this my fault? Right. Uh-huh. It's especially a child who who's being hurt by an adult. Adults are good. Uh-huh. And it, it can take so many years to, to get past that. And, you know, I actually do a lot of SC as well. So I'm, I'm glad that we're kind of piggybacking off it because, because sure. trauma is stored in the body, right? You can't just do, you know, especially with complex PTSD, you need a bunch of modalities, the stuff that you, you know, you said, I can't read, right? The ADP, the attachment work, mm. but you do, you really do need body work and you do need the EMDR work. Wow. So I'm really happy that you, uh, you made a very important distinction about the things where, you know, where they are stored because, you know, like Prince Harry, you could be in, you could be, you know, trying to fix something for years using the wrong tools and make no progress, not yeah. slow progress, no progress. None whatsoever. Wow. One, one of the girls said her teacher came in and said, girls, you know, it's been 35 years. I finally got on an elevator when I was eight years old. I, 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 I got stuck and I'll never, I didn't go on for 35 years. And my daughter was thinking like, what a shame, like a couple of sessions of this, this would have cleared. So wow. it, it, it's, you know, that's, the, uh, the OCD is something different. This kind of stuff. Um, I mean, that was a goal of me coming on the podcast to really talk about, you know, people who in COVID have some of these small, but very powerful traumas. And I don't mean small as in not important. I mean, it can be seemingly seem seemingly small, but if it's bothering you get the help that you deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you now about your father-in-law. Um, so you know, for for all of our listeners, a full disclosure: Sipalea um, is married to my mother's first cousin. My grandmother is a Scheinberg. Was a, is a, uh, my grandmother Lao Shalom is a Scheinberg, and uh, and your father-in-law, Uncle Mayer, to us had bracha chrita b'mechapa, like many of my other um, relatives, but uh, was a was a very very big. Uh, person and uh, figure in our family and many other families besides his shul as well. Um, and I understand that uh, you had, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of things that you learned from him as a daughter-in-law and spe- specifically in your line of work. So I wanted to know if we could spend maybe our last segment um, on this episode, talk a little, talk to us a little bit about your father-in-law and also maybe some of the things that, um, that you and he shared specifically in your uh, professional work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, I, words can't do justice to to the loss. It literally, you know, it was it was so huge. Um, so I'm going to go to the work piece, um, the 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 mental health piece. Um, so I went back to school as already as a mother. Um, my father-in-law was incredibly supportive. Um, when I graduated, I was, I was valedictorian um, at Fordham. Um, he and my mother-in-law sent me this um, beautiful, very expensive pen as a gift. Like 
to start writing my notes, you know? So it was that level of support. He knew I, he collected pens. He knew I loved pens and it, it was a gift that I treasure. I have it on my desk. Um, when I started working, my first placement was in an addictions uh, facility and the amount of Shilas that there were around men and women struggling with addiction, whether, whether it was about Shabbos or about so many halachic Shilas, uh, you know, what comes first, this issue or this issue? How do we deal with this type of addiction? What, what What's the hashkafa around X, Y, Z? Um, he spent hours with me. And I remember being on the phone for a while with him. And you know how busy he was. He was a rav and he, people called him all over the world. And I called him, I, I, I finished and I wrote my notes. And I'm like, oh, well, one more question. So I called him. I'm like, Abba, um, I'm so sorry. You have one more minute. And in that very slow, inimitable warmth, he's like, Tipolea, I have all the time in the world for you. Wow. Yeah, I like, it just stayed with me always. Um, he gave me, there were different sperm that he he gave me. And I have such a legacy of understanding mental health through his eyes. Can you share a couple examples of things that he taught you? Because here you're talking about a rub. Uh, who's bringing the rabbinics to the table and didn't go to school like yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the things that you learned from him in your field? Yes, for sure. First of all, the power, I'm going to use clinical terms and then I'll put it into later. The power of attachment, the power of attachment means that a child feels loved, secure, understood, safe, and also has limits. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, like really good attachment between parents and children from the very get-go, right? I, I mean, you knew my father-in-law. Was anybody more safe, right? He was, right, predictable, safe. And also with his children, Enochloch, there was a real element of fun. There was there was an element of play, which is so important between parents and children, right? Um, I remember right, there was a story how um, – one of the Enochloch, he was busy learning because, you know, he learned Yaman Velayla when he wasn't giving Sharon. He was busy learning. And then one of the Enochloch was playing hide and seek. And my father-in-law kind of beckoned to him and motioned to under his desk. Come hide under my desk while I'm learning. Right? They're, children must be children. Mm-hmm. Right? And children also need to be protected under all costs. What did you mention? Attachment? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what is attachment? Attachment is that feeling of between parent and child. And this goes right back to trauma, right? Mm -hmm. What it doesn't happen is um, I am here as a parent. I'm here to protect you, love you, um, have limits for you, support you, nurture you, and, and help you go out into the world. But when you need support, I delight in you coming back to me. Mm hmm and and why is this so important in children and when would you say the stage is where it becomes less important i wouldn't say not important because we always need some but you know where specifically in the uh in the bracket so to speak for okay. children can i use a a, a religious uh example would that be please okay so you know that rashi where yosef was going to do an Avera and he saw the Musta Yoikneshul Avik, sure, right? He sure. saw his father's the image. Life of Potiphar. This is right. a Pasha's Vayeshev, sure. Okay. When we have good early attachment, and attach, early attachment is, you know, zero to 18 months. We're talking early, zero to five years 
early, early attachment, because that is the bedrock of attachment. When we have good attachment with our caregivers, right, we can go out into the world and we carry them with us. Fascinating. So, you know, I, we really, in EMDR, we call that resourcing. The resources inside us. We don't need EMDR for this. We can go right back to the Torah, right? Yosef HaTzadik had his father as a resource. It was that in his head, Tzadik, don't do this, right? So good attachment when we are adults, we carry it with us, you know, to help us make the right choices, believe in ourselves, serve. You know, this is how this works. People who have not had that, and I have to say this, you know, the Scheinbergs have, mm-hmm. right? Thinking about this, right? But Many, many people don't. Their feelings as children were dismissed. They weren't protected. They weren't thought of. They definitely had food and water, right? They had a bed. Mm -hmm. But not necessarily did they have that devotion and love that creates such strength in a person. And someone who, you know, was, was not fortunate to have that, you know, they are now an adult, you know, what do they do? to help themselves. Obviously they'll know what not to do or what to do for the next right. generation, but how do, what do they do? And by the way, you know, this is very much amygdala based, right? So you can have a mother and this is one of the thing, work that I do parenting. She's a survivor of some type of complex abuse. She wants to cognitively do it different, but like, as the old saying goes, like every time I open my mouth, my mother comes out, right? Mm-hmm. The amygdala, once you get triggered by a child, you find yourself very often saying things that, you didn't want to say from your own childhood. It's a very common experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. This is fascinating stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Attachment, attachment is where it's at. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, no. I, and, and like, I can't help, like every time we do one of these types of episodes, we've done a few on mental health. We've done, thank God, uh, many different types. We've done, uh, you know, Rabanus, business, banking, sports even. Um, and, and we've done a few on mental health and every single time we do one on mental health, I can't help but think like, wow, we are so sophisticated. We yeah. have so much, like, this is really the world's greatest computer is on our shoulders. Sure. Um, it's fascinating. Wow. So thank you so much for your time. Um, how can, do you have a, a time frame on when you think your book is going to be coming out? Yes. Yes. You know what? I just, hello, I just want to go back to the other thing you said about what can people do? you know, there's tremendous hope, right? Creating loving attachments in your adulthood can be very, very healing. And then again, going back to doing SE, EMDR, attachment work mm-hmm. with, a, with a secure therapist. It, yeah, I, I actually, hmm. remi- it reminds me of, an, uh, of, a, of a talk by uh, Mordechai Weinberger, uh, who said something to the extent of, you know, it's sometimes you only, it, all, all you need is just one person that loves, you know, having that one uh, address. Sure. Absolutely. So there's hope. There's hope. Oh yes. Oh yes. For sure. Uh, so okay. thank you. Thank My you so much for coming on. Uh, and, and tell us, when do you think your book's going to be coming out? We're hoping, uh, January, 2023, Mr. Shen. Uh, summer, early 2023. Um, uh, it's going to be on Amazon. So we, I will definitely let you know. And you have my, my, uh, email address in case anybody has any for the sure, questions. Sure, absolutely. Can. Anyone can reach out to me if they want to have any questions, we can put, put them in touch with you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing, uh, sharing us your line of work. And uh, I, I, this attachment uh, is, is, you know, someone with young children was definitely something that spoke to me and thank you for that. And uh, may we all be safe, 
and sane, as I say, and uh, live happy, healthy, and better lives. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our listeners. I mean, thank you for having me. All the best. You know, that was a very interesting interview. Attachment theory that Sipalea was talking about. And I, I find that very interesting. She referenced Diyuk Noishal Aviv. And I want to leave all of you, my listeners, with the following thought that I heard. And when I heard it, uh, it, it really shook me up. It was just such a beautiful thought. And it's about that story that takes place in Parshas Vayeshev. That Yosef was cornered by Ashes Potiphar. Yosef was uh, approached by the wife of Potiphar. And she said to Yosef, Shechva imi, to be with her, to be intimate with her. And Yosef had to say no many times before, but this was a time where the house was empty and no one was there. And it was like the perfect storm. It was the, the setting was just who would know. And Basa de Yuknoishal Aviv, the, uh, the vision of his father came and told him, how can you do this? And Yosef ultimately surpassed that test and is now known forever as Yosef Atzadik, Yosef, Joseph, the righteous one. And where did Yosef get that? strength from no one was there no one would have known right and yet he surpassed and today we look around and so many people are just falling prey i mean for the for for the entire uh you know ever since people have been falling prey to this but especially today where it's so things are so public how did yosef have that strength and this attachment theory really comes alive in the torah because prior to this story Yosef's brothers came to Yaakov and they said to Yaakov that Taraf Taraf Yosef, Yosef was eaten up and he was torn apart. And the, the, the brothers came around Yaakov to comfort him, to give him Nechama, Nechama Velen. They came to comfort him like we do when we pay someone a Shiva call. And what did Yaakov respond to his brothers, to Yosef's brothers, to his children? He refused. He turned them away. I mean, can you imagine paying a shiva call and going to someone to say, those words that we hate to have to say, but we do say when someone's sitting shiva. Can you imagine saying that to someone and that person saying, I don't want to hear it. Get out of here. I never asked for that. Can you imagine? What would you do? <laughs> what type of response would that be? But that's exactly that's exactly what Yaakov did to to Yosef's brothers. And I heard a beautiful shot that it's the same word Vaimain that Yosef refused by Ishes Potiphar. Yosef refused because he knew that thousands of miles away there was someone who was very attached to him and never gave up on him, didn't want to be comforted. You didn't show me a dead body, you just showed me a cloak. I'm not giving up on Yosef. And Yosef felt that, that attachment. He felt it thousands of miles away. And the same word appears, Vayimain. And what's even more interesting is that the second time it appears, the trup is a shalshalas. The trup is Vayimain. That's a very, very rare trup a tune that the Balkori, the one reading the Torah, uh, puts in when he reads that word. And the, shal, the word shalshalas means a chain. A chain is comprised of links. And the two Vayimains are really linked together because when Yaakov didn't give up hope, when Yaakov didn't give up on Yosef, Yosef didn't give up on Yosef. The attachment theory really is in the Torah. Everything's in the Torah. So I thought I would leave you with this thought as we conclude this episode. Make sure to stay tuned for the next episode 
We're going to be featuring Slovy Jungreis Wolf. It's going to be fascinating. Uh, we're going to talk about what is a woman in the 21st century. So make sure to tune in. If you could leave us a review, that would be awesome. Very much appreciated. And looking forward to seeing all of you next time. To listen to all Colo's episodes and see upcoming guests, visit colopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colot is a project of the Columbus Community Colot, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men, and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvot at the Colot. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.